Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what is your relationship with horror stories, with horror movies, with horror fiction? Mm. Um, well, so you're a fan? Well, well, yeah, I would say that I'm not as much anymore, and I became really sensitive to horror in any sort of form um, when my after my daughter was born, actually while mm-hmm. I was pregnant. So I have been slowly ramping back up, uh, back, in, back up into zombie land. Uh, but I used to love the Ripper stuff. I'm not a Ripperologist, uh, but uh, that that was something that occupied my mind for for many many years. And uh, a Ripper enthusiast, a Rip enthusiast. Sure, yeah, okay. sure, I like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, stuff that I think is uh, absolutely frightening and takes hold of your mind, and you can't help but be entranced by it. And I'm pretty sure that you have a good lengthy relationship with horror. Yeah, yeah, I um. I mean, from very early on, possibly because my my uh, my mom's explanation for this is that she um, that, is that they always made uh, too much out of Halloween, or that they really celebrated Halloween in our household. So it it kind of instilled a, an early fascination with uh, with the macabre, and um, and and perhaps th- that's the case. But I mean, uh, from a very early age, I I was uh, fascinated with. Uh, with these fantastic stories and settings and and uh, any kind of creepy tales, um, I remember, in like, like uh, when I was in uh, you know, younger grades, uh, we would we'd go to the video store to rent movies as a family, or I'd go there with my dad, mm-hmm. and we were not horror movie renting uh, people, but I would sneak over, more uh, well, not really sneak, but I would I would go over to the horror aisle and I would walk down and I would look at all the VHS uh, covers, and it was a pretty. Uh, Pretty crazy experience doing that because on one hand, uh, especially in, in you know back in the back in the nineties, these uh, these VHS covers, they uh, even the crappiest film might have a really awesome uh, bit of poster art on the cover, a really right, awesome yeah. title, a really awesome sell. And uh, and as we've discussed before, I think that like the first episode we did with each other or the second about people turning inside out, mm-hmm. there was one uh, f- film that had a picture of a guy turning inside out on the cover. And the actual film has nothing to do with that. And it's, Didn't you say he had like jeans on too? Yeah, yeah, and that was what was on. so disconcerting as he was turning himself inside out or he was inside out and yet he had jeans on. Like me, yeah, maybe he knew he was going to turn inside out and he has a real aversion to nudity so he swallowed some jean shorts before the the poisonous <laughs> mist could transform That's him That's how something. that happened. But they they always had, you know even if it was if it was something just crazy out of the ordinary just a lost B film it might have some really neat cover going on and then the the mainstream hits they all had fascinating covers be it like a, a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street and and I you know, I'd always build up in my my mind this um this creative version of what that film must consist mm-hmm. of, and generally, you know, it's it's not an idea that would stand the test of time. When I actually watched the film later yeah, on down the road, yeah. so yeah, from a from a very early point, I was very interested in these in horror stories. And some of the first books I started reading uh, really hardcore were Stephen King books, mm-hmm. and then we got really into Lovecraft, and and I still. I still read a certain amount of horror. Some of it maybe is a little. More literary. Some mm-hmm. of it is significantly less literary, depending on, I guess, what my, right. my mood is. And I, and I, I write stories that are horror or horror 
esque in nature. So, oh, yeah, right. We'll get to uh, the crux of what we're talking about in a moment. But do yeah. you want to talk about that for a I'm, second? As soon as I'm through rambling, what no, 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 about what you've written and, and and some upcoming information about that. Oh, yeah. I do have a book of short stories that's going to be out eventually. But uh, <laughs> I, I don't. I it's uh, a book of uh, southern short stories, and it's called. Uh, it's going to be called the Grave Stompers, I believe. Yeah, okay. So, so look forward and, and we'll give you guys some more information on that. But I think that's really exciting. So I think oh, yeah, we'll I'm, talk I'm, about I'm that. excited about it. It's just got a little more editing, tweaking to do. Um, but yeah, the, the, the topic here, we're talking about horror. We're talking about our fascination with horror. And kids, you know, and kids. fascination. Kids right? fascinate. Because that's the thing. Like, like I mentioned earlier, from a very early age, I was interested in what these stories consisted of, mm-hmm. even if they were forbidden to me, and, you know, probably in certain, to a certain extent because they were forbidden to me. But uh, but all kids seem to have this this obsession on some level with, with what is waiting in the closet, right? What is behind the shower curtain or lurking yeah. in the bottom of the toilet. You know, and, and that is so true because um, I remember just hating these stories when I was little, but loving them at the same time. Like, tell me again, tell me again. And then just, you know, sitting in my bed thinking about how a severed uh, hand oh, the- was going to come and strangle me to death. Oh, I thought you were talking about the toilet story. Oh, they did think, made me think about the toilet for, for a moment, because I kind of think at some point I thought a severed hand might come out of the toilet, too, when I was little. Uh, well, see, I was poisoned by the VHS covers, because they had these awful Ghoulies films. Oh, yeah. And the, it pictured, the, the, the cover arts are, are amazing, because they picture these really bad-looking puppets. Not these were not Henson creations, but like horrible little goblin puppets coming yeah. out of the toilet. And the idea, I think the tagline was like they get you in the end or something. Oh, because you're exposed, you're vulnerable on the toilet. And as a kid, there there are other anxieties tied up with with using the toilet anyway. And then throw in the fact that there might be a goblin down there that might eat you in the bum. That in the bum. In the bum. That that's problematic right there. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about clowns for a moment. Okay. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, when you're talking about toilets and scary stuff, you've got to go to clowns. Um, I'm not the only person who's frightened of clowns. Apparently, this is something that a, a lot of people have a phobia of. And there is one study that I thought was very interesting. Um, the University of Sheffield study asked more than 250 children ages 4 to 16 what they thought of the idea of using clown imagery to decorate a hospital children's ward. Because this is really, they were trying mm-hmm. to figure out what they wanted to um, make this ward look like to make the kids feel more at home. Um, according to Dr. Penny Curtis, who helped conduct the study, quote, we found that clowns were universally disliked by children. Some found them quite frightening and unknowable. And unknowable. I, unknowable. I thought that was a really interesting word choice because I thought that, I think, is part of the problem with clowns. Um, I think anybody who's listening that has the same feeling about clowns that I do, there's this idea that, you know, there's uh, some someone hiding behind a mask, not showing their true self. Well, and their skin is ghostly pale. And, they have grease paint. It's yeah. just, and they're doing, you know, creepy tricks. Uh, but well, sometimes for, they're saving uh, rodeo people from certain goring at the hands of a bull. Uh, you got to respect the rodeo clown. That's, that's doing good work. I don't know. I don't know about that. I think the rodeo clown is perhaps the most frightening <laughs> because then you just put a, a cowboy head on top. It's just, it doesn't work. Well, I, one way I see this tying into what we're talking about today, the rodeo clown especially is kind of distracting you from the idea of death. And maybe we sort of see that, see through that to a certain extent, you know? And we, we kind of we kinda, we see the con going on, and we, and we don't want to buy into it. That's not 
a clown having fun. That is one dude trying to save another guy from getting run through with bullhorns. I, I don't know about that. I think that is the clown trying to add more distraction so that the the um, the, the radio person will be gored to death. Okay. I mean, I do not see anything there that's that's um, that is genuine. That's that's uh, beneficial. Going well, on. well, tell me this one more thing about clowns here. Um, and I encounter the clown phobia a lot because it seems like everybody has it. Um, but uh, it started with jesters for me, by the way. Jesters for the record. Yeah, no, just court jesters. Yep, those guys can't are great. stand them. Mm-mm. Well, they're with court jesters. I feel like they're a little more honest because the court jester is obviously addled. And is and is and is also in such close proximity to a mad ruler. They're really hanging on by a thread. They have to walk that line every day. Uh, and can I make the king laugh without actually uh, winding up in the dungeon? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So I feel for for those guys a lot more. But but tell me this: How about the sad clowns? How about uh, the sad hobo clowns like uh, like Emmett Kelly? Are you kidding? Like what, that's that's just, that's the worst. How is that the worst? He was just he was you see him and he's just he's okay, kind of mopey, maybe a little sad. A he's hobo eating. clown, you know, with stubble on the chin, with a cigarette hanging out, you know, <laughs> two coins in his pocket, has a hole in it. He that, has, that's uplifting for a child, right there. Well, they're hobo. He has that hobo mystique about him. You know, he's okay. a traveler. He's got that's stories. He has experiences. Hobo that he mystique. He wants to share. Yeah, hobo mystique. <laughs> Um, okay, so the, the question is, why do we keep going to material that, that unearths these uneasy feelings? So why did I read Stephen King's It, and I couldn't put it down, um, you know, and and it features a, a prominent clown, right? I think oh, most yeah. people, when they think about clowns, they usually think Penny about Lies. Stephen King's yep, It. Uh, why do we keep doing this? And scientists believe that the answer is that humans have evolved to actually enjoy fear. Hmm. And that we, there's a type of personality that really enjoys it. And we've talked about this person before. It's the neophiliac. It's like the type T, right? Type T, yeah. yeah. This is the person um, who craves new experiences, really wants a jolt, and that's because they have a lot more dopamine flowing. And we already know that there are genetic markers for this, right? Um, so this is something that is hardwired in some people. But that being said, even if you're not a type T person or a neophiliac, usually most people enjoy a good scare. Yeah, uh, to some degree. So, should I walk us through the the the, the brain? Take us through uh, the, the the shadow of the valley here? of death. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's say you're, you're watching something scary or or reading something scary. Um, I don't know. Let's say it's a I don't know Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's that was one that always got That's me. That's a good one. Um, so you're watching this, right? You have the horror on the screen and uh, and in the soundtrack because it has a fabulous sound design. Uh, runs into your ears, into your eyes. And it all winds up in this little almond-shaped clump of neurons mm-hmm. called the amygdala. All right, right. We, we, we've talked about the, the mm-hmm. amygdala a lot. Processes all sorts of emotions. Yep, front and center. Yeah, it's vital to emotional processing, especially uh, things like love, pleasure, and of course fear. Um, so, amygdala activate, unleashes all this, all these brain and body cocktails uh, into your body. All these hormones. All right, cortisol, adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, it prompts the adrenal glands to churn out cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Mm-hmm. And high levels of this uh, can actually impede insulin and causes the rise in blood sugar. It gives you a little extra fuel mm-hmm. because you the, the brain is telling you something scary is happening and you might have to either run from it or attack it with a stick. So right, so your pulse is quickening. Yeah, so you're going to need extra oxygen for that. So you're breathing faster. Mm-hmm. The body's saying, all right, let's do it. We're going to fight or flight. 
uh, I'm going to make sure that you have enough oxygen for it. Heart is racing so that oxygen can get to your muscles. Your appetite stalls because if you're about to have to fight <laughs> Leatherface, you don't you don't want to have to stop for a, a snack break or a granola bar, bar halfway through it. Right. Um, which I think would be a nice take because you know in the slasher films what always happens to the the uh, the survivor lady right she ends up uh, knocking down Jason Voorhees or somehow incapacitating our killer mm-hmm. kicking him in the, the the nethers or something um, hitting him on the head and then they're down and instead of doing the logical thing which is either which is fight or flight which is either run all the way away mm-hmm. into the next county or never stop hitting the downed maniac in the face with a brick. Fight it, finish it, right? Instead, right. they sit there next to the, the the killer and maybe weep a little bit until they actually wake back up again and it all starts anew. But it would be a nice twist if, if they stopped and they actually used that time to have a granola bar, like a power bar, and, yeah, yeah, little sacket of uh, snack mix. That would be, you know, if anybody's listening and they're they're writing the next screenplay for Scream <laughs> Ten or whatever we're on now. All right, so but, but that's not all. Your appetite is stalled, mm-hmm. and you're also you're sweating because we don't want you to overheat in this fight or flight scenario. All right, your pupils are dilated so that you can see the enemy better mm-hmm. because, you, again, the body's getting you ready to either fight it or flight it. And uh, and finally, the, the cortisol is saturated your bloodstream and feeds back in the amygdala to boost the perception of danger. So it also reinforces your memory of that initial fright so that you'll still feel uh, a little jumpy. Because the idea here is, like, I got attacked by Jason Voorhees today. Mm-hmm. I might be attacked by another Jason Voorhees tomorrow. Okay. So it stays in your system for a few days. That's why something frightful happens. You're, you're maybe a little jumpy for a little bit afterwards for, you know, days. Yeah. And this all happens within about three seconds. And while all this is happening, information also travels to your prefrontal cortex. And this is part of the brain responsible for consciously evaluating danger. And it tells you, thankfully, that this is just a movie. And so what happens is you are completely overstimulated, right? Yeah. And the resulting spillover is processed as reward instead of fear. Because all of a sudden you think, ah, oh, yes, okay, it's okay. There's there's no imminent threat. I have actually survived what I just imagined for myself. Yeah, because uh, the other thing, if you're about to potentially fight Jason Voorhees mm-hmm. or run from him, um, the body is also helping you out by making sure that, the, the, that uh, there are endorphins released into your bloodstream because you're going to sustain injuries if you're fighting him or running through the, the woods to escape him. So, so you end up having dopamine uh, flowing through the system, this feel-good drug that uh, if you're not actually having to fight or run away mm-hmm. uh, is just going to be there to make you feel good. You know, and you mentioned, too, that cortisol lingers in your blood for a couple of days, and um, that actually feeds into this other idea that it's, useful for your amygdala to be processing both fear and pleasure because uh, you don't necessarily want to um, separate those two forms of stimulation because situations change on a dime. What could be pleasant now uh, could in five minutes, ten minutes, a day later be actually very fearful or unpleasant. So the brain has to respond accordingly, and it's actually a pretty brilliant way to adapt very quickly to situations to have the amygdala, uh, you know, having this double duty. Now, another huge uh, aspect of fear, and, uh, and and this certainly flows over into our, into our enjoyment of horror films and horror fiction and and uh, you know, quick uh, uh, improv scares around the house, uh, and, and that is uh, the, the social context of it. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, like a lot of things, we learn how it works from seeing how others use it. 
we see how what other people's fear response is, and from that we uh, we begin to piece together our own appropriate fear responses. It's true, and uh, you know we had mentioned kids and the fact that they actually like to be scared, and I even see this in my three year old at around age two. Mm-hmm. She started saying chase me, or you know pretending that I was you know uh, T Rex or something. Um, and you do see this in kids, and they really are trying to work out situations. And this is the idea behind why they do like to get scared. Psychologist Paul Bloom's lab has actually shown four- and five-year-olds films of other children reacting to movies. Now, he had to do that uh, because for ethical reasons, he couldn't get kids into his lab and then scare them, right? <laughs> um, so, But he could show them images of children who were scared, who were watching scary movies. Um, When asked which of the movies they would want to see, because he showed them all different types of movies, um, boring movies, happy movies, sad movies, scary movies, the four- and five-year-olds preferred the happy films, of course, but they picked scary movies over the boring ones. Hmm. And he says parents automatically assume that children like stories with happy endings, and he cited the little engine that could. But he says, what about the little engine that that tried and failed, it might be that children would find it perversely satisfying. It's, it's also worth noting here, um, not to jump too far ahead, but most, um, yeah, maybe most um, mainstream horror films do have a happy ending. Um, yeah. The, like, you know, you'll have a lot of bad stuff happen, but then, but if they follow uh, the, the more stereotypical uh, story arc of these things, uh, you still have everything come back around to some level of normalcy and some some manner of a happy ending. Now that that does not hold true across the board, but if you think right. that some of the, the 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 stuff that's really mainstream, the stuff that is actually up there in the box office, um, like Jaws, for instance, what happens at the end of Jaws? Spoiler: shark blows up. Right, right. The the bad guy, the yeah. boogeyman. Is vanquished, really. Right. And so we see that over and over again in stories. We see uh, fairy tales, right? And this is the stuff that we feed our children's mind with from the get-go. Uh, I remember that not too long ago, there were 500-year-old um, German fairy tales that were just unearthed. Mm-hmm. And one of them was particularly gruesome. It was about a witch who swallowed um, this girl. Or actually, the girl was trying to get away from the witch. She turned mm-hmm. into water. The witch swallowed her up. And so then the girl had to cut herself out of the witch's belly. And, you know, this, again, the, the reason why we're putting this sort of information out there, um, consciously or unconsciously, is because you're trying to teach kids about dangers in the world. Right. And that's what storytelling and, and really horror stories are trying to tell you. Like, there is some sort of moral code ascribed to what we're doing in the world. Um, and there are consequences. Yeah. And then, of course, you have some of the nursery boogies were just... All about trying to correct certain behaviors, like uh, like uh, the long-legged scissor man, the whole rhyme about where basically it's you don't need to suck your thumb because if you keep sucking your thumb, the long-legged scissor man will show up and he will slice your thumbs off. I have never heard that. Oh, you're really there's a there's a fun rhyme. If I'd uh, if I thought about it ahead of time, I would have brought it. I would have brought it in prepared so we could we could read it. But uh, it's fun wow, stuff. Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, I didn't get a lot of that kind of stuff read to me as a child. It was mostly like envir- you didn't grow up in a Victorian. <laughs> no, okay. it was mostly like environmental literature, like Pop Cam Park and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's a, this idea that children are learning what dangers are and uh, people who they can trust and not trust. Um, and there's something actually called Williams syndrome uh, in children and adults, and this 
actually uh, the syndrome doesn't allow them to be fearful of anybody in any sort of social situation. Um, they are hypersocial mm-hmm. people with Williams syndrome. They love people and they are literally pathologically trusting of people. Right. And not to imply that all hypersocial activity in uh, in small kids is, is definitely tied up in this condition. You also have situations where kids will be hypersocial because they've grown up in a, an early environment where um, it, it is advantageous to be uh, ultra-social with various people moving through their lives, particularly in, say, a uh, an institutionalized setting like an yeah. orphanage, as yeah, right, as as, as a way to adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, with people with true Williams syndrome, researchers, uh, researchers actually think that their limbic system, the part of the brain that regulates emotion, is wired differently, and uh, there appears to be a dysregulation in one of the chemicals, oxytocin. Uh, we've taught, we've called that the love hormone before that signals when to trust and when to distrust. And parents of kids with Williams syndrome have to be really vigilant about teaching their children to distrust people because they, they truly will, they, they really sense no fear whatsoever and will run up to anybody and, uh, and pretty much say, Hey, what's going on? Come home with me. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss, uh, catharsis and, uh, our old friend, benign violation. Oh, that old friend. All right, we're back. So, benign violation. You may remember this from when we talked about humor. What makes something funny, according to to some theories of of humor, uh, is the fact that uh, we're threatened, but not really. Something that seems like it's going to kill us is actually just a joke, and therefore we laugh. It's our 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 way of communicating to our fellow cave people that uh, that there's no real threat. That the what we thought was a saber toothed tiger jumping out of the uh, the underbrush to consume us was actually just fog, uh, having a laugh at our expense. And then we all kind of laughed because we were so frightened. Yeah, and, it's and a then release. we sacrificed fog to our red gods. Right, but, and uh, but then the saber toothed tiger in the actual horror film does come out right after the laughter right. moment. Right, but. Uh, but the benign violation uh, definitely plays into our consumption of horror because, mm-hmm. like we discussed earlier, all this stuff's going on in your brain. You're watching this horror movie. You're reading this horror book. Your body is responding uh, accordingly. Mm-hmm. And then your brain kicks in and says, whoa, just to keep in mind, this is just a movie. It's not real. Uh, and uh, and thank goodness that part of the, the brain is there to remind us of this. But it, 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 it results in this benign violation area where we're threatened but not really. There's something horrible, but it actually can't hurt us. Right. So you know that the threat's not there, and um, I do think it's very interesting that it has such a parallel with humor. Mm-hmm. And indeed, like we discussed in the humor uh, situation, what happens when you go to see a horror movie uh, in, in a movie theater? Well, when people are not checking their email, talking on the <laughs> phone, uh, smoking um, illegal substances, or talking with their friends, or eating popcorn, eating nachos. Making out. Making out, drinking uh, sodas really loudly, talking to their uh, child who is inappropriately attending the film. You have when, a long list. It is a long list of things that happen that are not movie viewing in a, in a movie Like theater. you just took that list out of your pocket and yeah. just went down. But one of the other things they do is, is they laugh when something horrible happens, which is... Something I line up on that list of things I hate about seeing films with other people uh, list, but it, but it's something that actually <laughs> lines up with the science and what we're looking at here because yeah. it's the benign violation. It's yeah. it's the fact that something horrible happened and they didn't die. It produces laughter, and I, I can't get too irritated at that because it's tied into our evolutionary history. Well, it is cathartic. Yeah. Right. So, but here's here's the thing. What 
so why are they eating nachos? Because they, if they're scared, they should have their – that's the other thing that gets me. It's like people will go into a film to see something like Schindler's List or some sort of horror film, and they have nachos. Why? Well, why? They're going to pay for it afterward, but that's <sighs> not your problem, yeah. man. But they're going to lose their appetite during the fearful moments. Anyway. What are you going to do? Like say, hey, man, don't eat those nachos. Like you're, you're going to produce too much stomach acid because you're in an altered state. Maybe. And, and too much noise. They should soak those things more in that yellow gook beforehand so they're nice and soggy. Anyway, um, I got off the start. What was I talking about? Well, I think we were talking about uh, um, trying to master our fear and catharsis, really. Yes, catharsis. Uh, catharsis, just to remind everybody, this is uh, the purging of emotions or relieving of emotional tensions, especially through certain kinds of art, such as tragedy or music. Um, it's the pleasure that comes from the relief that follows, right? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to note that a lot of horror flicks are really geared toward teenagers and 20-somethings. Um, John Edward Campbell, who is an expert in media studies at Temple U- University, said that uh, that people in those age groups are more likely to look for intense experiences, while older people have stimulation fatigue. Uh, he says life's real horrors scare them, or they don't find them entertaining anymore or interesting. Yeah, um and then Freud, he even piped in on this. He suggests that uh, horror was appealing because it traffics in, quote, thoughts and feelings that have been repressed by the ego, but which seem vaguely familiar. So lining up with that and, and also outside of that, you ha- horror is a form of, uh, this can be this form of therapy where we're, we're dealing with the things that we're afraid of, but in forms that make more sense, mm-hmm. be it a, a social concern that is personified or some sort of uh, uh, just... You know, the fear of death personified into something that can be uh, dealt with on a, on a like a cl- more of a clear cut level. We've talked about zombies before. Like you can look at zombies that way. Zombies as this uh, as this this clear cut personification of various fears that can be dealt with in a pretty clear cut manner. Most of our fears we can't shoot dead in the street with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Um, not and and still maintain a you know a, a fair standing in society. Uh, zombies and the, the zombie fiction allows us to engage in that kind of a world where there is good and there is zombie, and they are cleanly uh, dealt with through a, a specified means of taking them down. You know, um, I was just thinking, too, and when you're young, when you're really young, um, and then even when you're a teenager and in your early 20s, you are still grappling with this idea that one day you will die, right? The, this mm-hmm. is this ultimately is the problem that we're dealing with. This is why horror films are so entrancing to us. Yeah, you can boil a lot of horror down to just basically us trying to figure out mortality. Yeah, it's a basic human condition of existential fear, mm-hmm. right? Like we know that eventually all of us will be entering that, that doorstep of death. And so I was just thinking about how you said uh, that you might be uh, overly wrapped with um, the macabre because of, of growing up and celebrating Halloween. And the same thing in my family happened. I mean, we, my dad would play the pit and the pendulum against the house, like protecting against the house oh, every awesome. year. And he would turn our yard into a graveyard. And our favorite movies of family to this mm-hmm. day, and this was when you know, my brother, were, I was five and my brother was seven, is Harold and Maude. Okay. Which, Which is about a... a- a very morose kid. It's about death and oh, his preoccupation with, I can't remember. He's, uh, oh. But Holly was telling me how disconcerting it is to see him yeah, in pictures today. Because he, he was in nothing. the life aquatic. He was the accountant. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but he, his character was preoccupied with death. Um, 
he would pull off these hoax deaths all the time or suicides. And my brother used to do the same thing. So he would like, you know, we'd be eating dinner and he'd go get up to go to the bathroom. And the next thing you know, you would see him dragging his body. If you've ever seen when someone do that across the threshold, you know, from the door. So we, so it looked like someone was dragging his body. And he was always <laughs> pretending to, to be Harold. And now that I think about it, that, that was a really fun way for her, for us to kind of uh, get a bead on that subject, on death, huh. and work it out, I suppose. Um, one of my favorite... Cathartic. Com- yeah, it was. It's very cathartic. Um, one of my favorite commentators on all of this is, uh, is Stephen King, who, uh, in his intro to his short story collection, Night Shift, um, has uh, a lot of really interesting things to say about not only the craft of writing stories and his own experiences with, with writing horror, but also uh, what he sees as the meaning of it. And he keeps making allusions to the, um, uh, you know, you've heard the idea of the, uh, the the blind men men and the elephant, right? Where there's an elephant and there are these there's this pack of blind men and they're pawing at the elephant and each one is feeling a different part of the elephant and thus describing it differently. Like mm-hmm. the person, uh, the blind man touching the um the, the the legs of the elephant says oh it's like a it's like a, a pole and then the the person touching the trunk says oh it's like a snake and uh, King makes this um, this argument that horror allows us to paw at this equally um, unseen body that is death um, I'm going to read a quick quote from him he says children learn fear quickly. Uh, they pick it up off their mother or father's faces when the parent comes into the bathroom and sees them with the bottle of pills or the safety razor. Fear makes us blind, and we uh, fear makes us blind, and we touch each fear with all the avid curiosity of self-interest, trying to make a whole out of a hundred parts, like the blind men with their elephant. We sense the shape. Children grasp it easily, forget it, and relearn it as adults. The shape is there, and most of us come to realize what it is sooner or later. It is the shape of a body under our sheet, under a sheet. So I, I thought that sums it up rather nicely uh, uh, as far as just horror as our wrestling with mortality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think anybody can put it better than Stephen King. And um, and then there's all I've, I've mentioned before, you know, monsters. Anytime we're dealing with monsters, monsters almost always signify something. They are not just a situation of, oh, you know, it'd be scary if we had a, there was a guy, but his his head was a wolf's head. Wouldn't that be, that would be scary. Let's just throw that in there. Uh, I mean, that may be the the level of thinking engaged in the creation of the particular story or Mm -hmm. myth. But deeper down, um, we even look to the, uh, like the word monster. The word monstrosity originates from the Latin uh, monstrare, which means to show or illustrate a point. So all of our monsters, uh, no matter how gross or poorly designed, they embody ideas, fears, and abstractions about the human condition, be it about death or mm-hmm. disease, be it a, a social concern or um, uh, you know, what have you. It can or be, even ourselves, how we can yeah. be unknowable to ourselves. Exactly. Uh, yes, yeah, certainly when you look at um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, King also, in this uh, this intro, he, he describes horror, too, as a, a kind of replacement therapy. You know where, um, and this gets a little into catharsis, but uh, but m- more along the lines of I have certain pr- things in my life that um, that cause me a certain level of anxiety, mm-hmm. and um, wouldn't it be nice if I could replace that for a little bit with some imagined anxiety that's even worse? So an escapism that w- makes my lot in life look. Not so bad. Yeah. He says, uh, the horror story writer is not so different from the Welsh sin eater who was supposed to take upon himself the sins of the dear departed by partaking of the dear departed's food. The tale of monstrosity and terror is a basket loosely packed 
with phobias. When the writer passes by, you take one of his imaginary horrors out of the basket, and you put one of your real ones in, at least for a time. Which I thought was an, an interesting way of looking at it. Well, very cool. Um, I think that these are different ways to kind of come at the subject, but at the end of the day, um, you know, there's there's uh, something that a psychologist named Glenn Walters of Cutstown University. What he said, I thought was was uh, resonated with me. He said, "Control lost under the cover of darkness is rediscovered in the light of day. Danger posed by things unknown is reduced by increased knowledge and predict- predictability." And I thought that is really what it's about. I mean, any sort of story is is a bit of a training wheels for us to try to occupy this this uh, space in our mind where we try to imagine ourselves in these horrific moments. Um, so it is instructive. Yeah. And fun well, um, in that context. I'll be sure to do a blog post uh, to go along with this podcast. And uh, so as to cut down on time now, I will list some uh, other favorite uh, bits of uh, horror fiction or horror uh, film um, in that blog post, and you can check it out. So as we leave this podcast uh, and our uh, contemplation of fearful and horrible things and uh, and how... Uh, lo- real and imagined. Yeah, real and imagined, and how looking into the darkness can help us uh, conquer the darkness. Uh, here's a little bit of geeky uh, quotiness uh, from uh, one of my favorite authors, Frank Herbert. Uh, you'll recognize it. Uh, he said, uh, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Hallelujah. Yeah. So whisper that in your mind next time you watch something uh, frightening on TV that isn't the news. (laughs) If it bleeds, it leads. All right. Do we have... Any mail there? Yes. Uh, there's. We, I feel like we probably went a little long, so I'm just going to have the robot share one of these with us. All right. This is from one Albert. Albert writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I finished listening to the Centaur episode. Very interesting. Just wanted to pass on something regarding Centaur sex. John Varley, uh, in his science fiction novel Titan, explored this very topic. Astronauts end up exploring a space station. And one of the species they meet are centaurs. These centaurs have both human genitalia and equine genitalia. And the two parts do not necessarily match, meaning a centaur with a male human package can have a female equine package. The author explores a lot of interesting topics in sexuality in this novel. I highly recommend it. Uh, that is awesome. John Varley, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with him, he uh, he wrote a lot of science fiction back in the day. He also wrote one particular story called Overdrawn at the Memory Bank. Uh, and there was a kind of awesome, kind of cheesy uh, PBS adaptation of this story of starring Raul, Raul Julia back in the day. And it was actually featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Adam's family, Raul Julia? Yeah, yeah, okay. that, that Raul Julia. Great actor, um, kind of a very cheesy production, a lot of kind of matrixy type special effects before we really had the ability to pull that off. Um, but it's, So you could uh, see the strings on them as yeah. they bent backward? Yeah, but it, as cheesy as it is, there are some fabulous ideas explored in that. And so it, it doesn't come as too much of a surprise uh, that John Varley also explored uh, the topic of uh, centaur sexuality. So there you go. Um, and penis placement and, yeah. and other equipment. There you go. So it sounds like one worth uh, checking out there. Thanks, Albert, for bringing that to attention. And uh, if any of you would like to discuss the topic of centaur sexuality or horror with us, 
you know where to find us. On, both. Yeah, both. At the, they, there's a lot of uh, overlap between those two topics, I would imagine. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, where we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And you can find us on Twitter, where our handle is Blow the Mind. Let us know your experiences with horror fiction, horror movies, what scares you, and what are your thoughts on the, the fright process inside your mind. And you can always drop us a line at BlueTheMind at Discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Tomorrow.